This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Welcome. Uh, The subject before us, the Great European Refugees and Migrants Debate. And I think even with recent events over the last few hours or the last weeks, it's still true that this question has been, in some ways, the dominant question of 2015 in Britain and uh, beyond. And maybe in some ways the dominant question of our time, as people all over the world are on the move. And some of the things we're going to discuss tonight are whether the arrival of newcomers to a society like Britain's is a, crudely, a blessing or a burden. Do newcomers to this, this country add to it or do they take away from it? That will be one of the questions we examine. We'll be asking whether or not there should be any limits and if there should be limits on migration into a country like Britain, where exactly should that limit lie? We'll be examining whether this is just part of the world we now live in, a function of globalisation that people will always be on the move, that we live in the age of mass and great migration. So, without further ado, let's get on. Here's how this is going to work at the beginning. I'm going to ask for an opening uh, shot from each of our five speakers. I've asked them to only talk for two or three minutes. Uh, Rather rudely, I will chime on the glass, which is down there, uh, when two minutes are up, because I just want this to be an opening sense of how they see this question. Uh, And the first to do that, and you can do it either standing or sitting, whichever is comfortable for you, uh, is the former leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, formerly the International High Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina from 2002 until 2006, now sits as a member of the House of Lords for his opening perspective on this question, please welcome Paddy Ashdown. If you think this is new, unusual, exceptional, let me disabuse you. What we are experiencing is a visitation from the past. It is the new normal and it will be the new future. It's the last 40 or 50 years when we haven't had this which is exceptional. Throughout history, there has always been vast tides of history, vast tides of people pushed ahead of pestilence, famine, war, seven million in displaced people's camps. After the Second World War, the flotsam and jetsam washed up where they were left, absorbed into their societies. It's now come back to revisit us, and it will be about our future too, because if you think the 
tide of humanity now knocking on our door is, is big. Wait until global warming takes effect. Not long ago, I was in Kuala Lumpur talking to the ASEAN nations who are already seeing and beginning to plan for the four million people who will be displaced after the sea levels rise by a metre, which they're reliably predicted to be going to do. They're dealing with that as a region, and that brings me to my second point. There's no way that you can deal with this except in a European context. This is our region. You have to have a Europe-wide policy. And therefore, I believe our government's policy towards this is both morally questionable and extremely stupid, because we can't even deal with the 3,000 knocking on the gates of the Channel Tunnel. Uh, if we do not deal with the migrations moving into Europe, their solution is also ours. And instead of resting on our side of the 20-mile-wide moat that separates us from this, by the way, probably a 50th as wide as the Mediterranean, which people aren't having difficulties getting across, instead of sneering that the, Ameri- that the rest of our Europeans' feckless bunch are having difficulties coping with a million when we won't even concentra- concentrate our mind on 3,000, We should be joining them. In the end, they will stumblingly get there. At least they are trying. They will find the means to deal with this crisis. And that brings me to my third point. I think if this is about the future, this is a new geopolitical fact of our life. And in the end, we're going to have to find the policies to deal with it. I have a suspicion that in the next five to ten years, there will be an international conference that draws up new rules, new regulations, good heavens, We might even have to revisit the definition of an asylum seeker. We will definitely have to visit, we will definitely have to visit, I'm told that's two minutes and I have three, we will definitely have to visit, we'll definitely have to visit how we separate the hangers-on, the piggybackers, from the genuine asylum seekers, and I suspect we're going to have to find a new definition for those who are neither asylum seekers nor economic migrants, but have had their homes taken away from them by global warming. In the course of that... We will give great opportunities for um, those who some of us don't like to sing the devil's songs. It will be a battle for humanity against those which we might lose unless we're very careful. But if you do lose it, then I am no doubt whatsoever that you will add refugees to the already numerous reasons why wars exist on our planet, of which I believe, and you may do so too, that we already have an over-sufficiency. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you. Next up is an advisor on migration and human rights at the United Nations, there at the High Commission on Human Rights. For her perspective, Pia Oberoi. Thank you very much. I just wanted to reflect a bit on migration because it is the empowerment of a young woman able to earn a living for the first time in her life. It is the hope that a community places in a young man sent abroad to provide a lifeline for those back home. It is the story of innovation and entrepreneurship of migrants, the ideas and the knowledge that they bring and those that they take back home with them. But today, as Paddy has pointed out, the predominant story of migration is one of exclusion and inequality. Refugees forced to flee violent conflict and persecution, migrants compelled to escape what the United Nations Secretary General has called silent crises, grinding poverty, environmental destruction, hunger. The desperate, precarious mass movements that we are seeing today are by no means truly voluntary. And juxtaposing deserving against undeserving human beings ignores a complex reality. Too many people are being forced to leave their homes and communities in search of security and dignity. Most of them are not in Europe, nor are they coming here. But Europe cannot any longer remain aloof from the global crisis of mobility. Many European countries are in demographic decline, 
with aging populations and a shrinking workforce. Europe desperately needs more young people to run its health services, contribute to the tax base, and look after its elderly, because increasingly Europe's societies are no longer self-sustaining. And overwhelmingly, migrants are not looking for charity. At the same time, local populations deserve a more accurate picture of migration and not a series of badly drawn caricatures. For sure, there are few easy answers. But the solution to the chaos and suffering we see at land and sea borders lies in governing migration intelligently and compassionately, not embarking on futile efforts to prevent it at all costs. The universal principles that bring us together as human beings must surely be the basis on which responses to the current migration crisis should be built. Governing migration fairly means upholding legal obligations to respect the human rights of all migrants and refugees, acknowledging the real needs of labor markets, particularly in the care economy and low-skilled job sectors, and crafting entry systems that protect our values as well as our borders. Migration policy must be premised on evidence and compassion, not on misperception, stigma, and fear. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, next, uh, to give his perspective, uh, is a speaker who joins us from Hungary, where he is the Director of Research at the Sazoldweg Foundation. It's a conservative think tank, which is the official advisor to the Hungarian government on uh, this subject, on matters of migration. So with his opening perspective... Uh, Balash Orban. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation. First of all, I have to start with the clarification. Although I came from Hungary and my family name is Orban and I, uh, we are the official advisors of the current Hungarian government, I'm not a relative of, the, uh, of our Hungarian prime minister, so it's just a coincidence. Uh, but I, I wrote some uh, thesis sentences for you um, I think we Europeans are responsible for the current stage of the migration crisis. Although migration is a neuter expression, some shape of migration uh, is positive and some is negative. The humanitarian assistance is an obligation of all the countries around the world, although it doesn't mean uh, that we have to receive everybody as a refugee, uh, and it means that, that the form uh, of uh, humanitarian assistan assistance cannot be formalized or standardized. So I think the mass flow of people is uh, right now we have a special form of migration. So we Hungarians, we call it, we have a special Hungarian expression. It's called that population migration. So it's a mass flow of migration. There is no e English expression like this. I haven't found it. So maybe you're aware in that. So we it's a special form of migration, what we have uh, now. And this special form of migration is a serious problem for all the EU member states and needs to be stopped because we Europeans lost control. Control means, um, I'm teaching constitutional law, so control means sovereignty. Europe lost lost sovereignty in this situation. And if we do not take immediate action... The current crisis will uh, threaten most of our commonly shared values, as you all heard about um, the, uh, that the threatening of the EU as an area without internal borders, which is already threatened. 
And I think that first of all, we should uh, um, make two steps. We should accept or agree on a package. First part of the package is that uh, our politicians, the, the, the body language of, the, of our politicians need to be changed. The external communication of our body language, uh, of the body language of the um, politicians need to be changed. And secondly, our legal system right now is catalyzing or galvanizing the whole process. So we have to change the legal system. Why am I saying this? Because just imagine the situation that you are in Afghanistan, you are in Bangladesh, or you are in Africa. You, you don't have to chance to start a new life in the European Union legally. So you will never get a visa uh, to arrive to Europe and start a new life there. It doesn't matter whether you are a refugee or a migrant. The only chance you have is, the, is to move on from your country of origin, walk around the continent, not cooperate with the transit countries, arrive uh, your receiving country, and there uh, apply for an asylum. And if your asylum is granted, then you will have the chance to stay in that country legally. If not, then you will send it back. I think it's nonsense, and this is anti-human, this current process. So we have to stop that. We have to regain our sovereignty, and then we can talk about migration and then the refugee issues as well. Thank you. Okay. Just, just, uh, I just want to clarify one thing there. You said that it having to stop. Does that mean your advice to the government of Hungary when it comes to the number of refugees or migrants who should be allowed in, is, you, is your advice that figure should be zero? No, well, it's a different problem. The, the problem is that what we were facing in Hungary, that we, can, we are not capable of registering the people because there is a massive flow of people. So first of all, we have to change the... Uh, the, the whole um, legal system and legal regime, and then we can regain control and make a decision whether somebody is a <clears> refugee <throat> and somebody is an economic migrant. And that's the second question, what we think about immigration. So, but that's a different situation. We are confusing things sure. in Europe right now. All right, let's go to uh, our fourth uh, speaker, known to many of you here, a uh, leading British politician who held the roles both of Defence Secretary and Foreign Secretary, serving in the governments of Margaret Thatcher and then John Major, and maintaining a close interest uh, in foreign affairs. Uh, with his perspective on this question, Sir Malcolm Rifkin. Thank you very much. Let me begin, if I may, by responding to one of the questions that Jonathan asked. Uh, as the uh, grandson of a migrant, I have no difficulty saying that migrants can very often make a very viable contribution uh, to the country that, uh, that receives them. That is uh, I, uh, very straightforward. I want to concentrate my opening remarks uh, on the question of asylum seekers and the current crisis, which involves not hundreds or even tens of thousands, but millions of people who are entitled to think of themselves as refugees uh, seeking uh, asylum. Some of the facts are not controversial. Uh, it is not controversial that people have a right under international law to seek asylum if they are being persecuted. Secondly, it, it's not in dispute there are several million people, mostly Syrians, but not just Syrians, uh, who can claim that entitlement at the present time. Uh, and I think thirdly also, I have no problem with the proposition that the United Kingdom and Europe uh, must accept a share of the obligation to meet that requirement. Mm. 
But let me move into slightly more controversial territory. The first point I would make is that the vast majority of the Syrian asylum seekers are no longer in Syria. There are many who are in Syria, but I'm talking about the two or three million, perhaps even more than that, who are mainly in Turkey or Jordan or Lebanon. And at this moment in time, they are no longer suffering uh, persecution that has made them asylum seekers. They have asylum, although not in very agreeable or attractive circumstances, and with no certainty as to their long-term future. But they are not currently uh, at risk to their lives because of the government and the country from which they have left. Second point, people have rights of seeking asylum. They neither have nor have ever had a right to say, and I want to go to this particular country, and it's unreasonable and unacceptable for that country not to accept me. There is no such legal entitlement. That is a matter for both the receiving country and the asylum seeker to reach agreement on. And thirdly, there is no specific British or European obligation that doesn't apply to the rest of the world. The treaty obligations we all operate under are universal obligations, and therefore if there are millions of people seeking asylum, this is not, as it's so often described, a challenge to Europe. It is an ethical and legal obligation for all the civilized countries of the world to share in responding to this burden. And the final point I would make in these opening comments is, in addition to that, there is a very real question as to whether the best way when you're dealing with millions of people who are living very close to their original country, many of whom will want to return to that country, most of whom are actually, these refugees are exactly the sort of people their own country needs even more than the rest of the world because of their professional skills and their other educated qualities. We have to also look at ways of allowing them to remain as close as possible to Syria, which will require billions, billions of pounds or dollars of help from the international community, but enable, and also a change in the rules that at the moment prevents them even being able to work when you're living as a refugee uh, and an asylum seeker. That is absurd and obviously causes maximum discontent. So there are a remedy of solutions. But I conclude by saying it is not either ethically or legally correct to imply that there is a uniquely British obligation or European okay. obligation. All the past problems, such as at the end of the Second World War, led to millions of people going not just to Europe, elsewhere in Europe, but to the United States, to South America, to Australia, and in the case of Arab refugees, the Arab states themselves, many of whom are incredibly wealthy, should be accepting their share of the obligation also. Okay. <clears throat> Let me... Um... Before we hear from our last speaker, I just wanted to follow up one, just one thought there. It's about, partly about terminology. Those people who have fled Syria but are now in the neighbouring states, as you've described, uh, whether Jordan or Lebanon uh, or, or Turkey, what's the right way to describe those people? Should they no longer be described as refugees because they are no longer in an urgent situation of seeking refuge? How would you describe them? They are refugees because they have not yet got a, any country, including Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan that have given them permanent right of residence. That is why under the stupid rules at the moment they're not even allowed to work. But you would uh, want to distinguish between those and the, and the person fleeing Syria for their life. I am simply saying that they are not at the... If you are in a refugee camp in Turkey, Lebanon or Jordan, it's a pretty uh, uh, unpleasant experience. 
But it is not one okay. that means you continue to be a threat to your life. The things that made you a refugee in the first place. I understand. Place I just wondered no if there's a way apply. in the language where we could have a word that distinguishes those two situations. But maybe we just don't have it. Let's hear this. Uh, our last speaker with some opening thoughts, uh, and then we're going to obviously uh, uh, get into discussion. Uh, the fifth perspective on this question comes from the rabbi of New North <laughs> London Synagogue and the senior rabbi of the Masorti strand of Judaism in Brittany. He lectures widely, writes widely. And with his perspective on this question, please welcome Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg. Uh, let me begin with, uh, with a human obligation. I was in Calais at the camp there with a range of interfaith leaders, and I was rather worried that we would be tourists of disaster, but people wanted their stories to be heard. And a man from Sudan, he called me over to his tent, which I wouldn't even call a two-person tent. And he had sleeping bags and blankets. It was very cold in there. Two people could just about squeeze in. And since then, the weather has become cold and it's, it's, it, it's wet and it's, it's raining. And his situation reminded me that by the age of 16, both my parents were refugees from Nazi Germany. So this is an issue very close to home and moral home in the Jewish community, though not that alone in particular. And my father, when I was 16, took me aside one day and he said, just remember, do your schoolwork because you can take everything from a person except what's in their mind. And what struck me actually about these refugees, he once said, I'm I'm a medic, I'm a computer scientist, is actually their minds have been taken or the capacity to, to use them have been taken from them as well. And from the point of view of human compassion, there is an obligation of, of collective of collective care, how that pans out among countries is, 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 is a secondary and a clearly important question. And there's very widespread goodwill. I've got at least four NGOs operating or being led from my own community. So that's about compassion. Then there's a question about what's equitable and intelligent. Uh, one couldn't, from the point of view of Jewish history, not have in mind, as there have been European conferences about who will take whom and how many and the disagreements, have in mind the Evian conference called by President Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor in France in the summer of 1938, at which not only did virtually no country say they would take a greater number of people fleeing Nazi fascism, it actually allowed Goebbels to say in Germany, well, they complain that we don't like the Jews, but they don't want them either, which led almost directly to the escalation of violence against them. So there is an obligation, it seems to mind, to, be, to find an equitable way of sharing across humanity the care for what is a part of our own family. The last thing I want to talk about is long-term, and this was already said before. I'm very nervous that the terrible events in Paris eight days, nine, ten days ago will eclipse the coming events of the climate conference in Paris, but it's very clear that the less of the world's service is habitable, the greater will be the number of refugees. And therefore, we need to act the best we can against both warfare and environmental degradation in the long-term interests of having as much of the earth livable home to people as possible. Thank you. We've, we've had the, um, the, the sort of opening perspectives. Let's just, as I said, get into some sort of freer and open discussion. I, I'm just going to pick up with something with you, Balash, and then I, I would like others to come in on this. Um, your, your government's position, anyway, was... Um, and, you know, in September, several countries voted against uh, the move that would have uh, seen uh, refugees allocated, as it were, 
across Europe in late September, there was an agreement that 120,000 refugees would be, if you like, distributed across the European Union. Four countries voted against, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. Who does Hungary imagine will take in these immigrants, uh, these refugees rather, if Hungary won't? I mean, what is the... There will be plenty of countries that think it's difficult to take in refugees. If each country says, well, we don't want them, who, who does your government and other governments imagine will take them in? It's not an economic problem. Uh, the, the problem is that they don't want to stay in Hungary. Uh, they want to go to Germany and to Sweden and because they want to go there because they are invited. So that's what's happening. And welcome, perhaps. And well, well, actually, I think uh, the situation is changing rapidly, but but used to be welcomed for sure. Um, I would like to talk about, uh, and we cannot do anything against that. We we also have Hungary. We also have humanitarian obligations. We are uh, participating in the UNHCR relocation programs. So we welcome refugees directly from Syria, the same as what uh, Great Britain is doing right now. So, um, but that's another story, what's going on right now. Uh, I want to talk about shortly... But I suppose what I'm saying is, you yep. know they can't live in Syria because it's become uninhabitable, that country, because of the war. So where should these people live, do you think? They should live in uh, uh, neighbouring countries. Pia, um, this idea that we heard Balash articulate that actually the right place for those people is in the surrounding states... What's your counter, what's your reply to that? Should, is the right place for these people Lebanon, pretty stretched, I know, but Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, etc.? The average time a person spends in displacement, a refugee spends in displacement, is 17 years. That's just the average time. We have people that are born and bred and grow up in refugee camps. The Syrians that have been sitting in, in Jordan, Lebanon, and, and then moved on to Turkey... Um, have not been able to access the bare minimum of, of, of subsistence for themselves. We have talked to people that have moved on because they haven't found education, decent education for their children, health care. And I think this really speaks to the, the beginnings of the refugee regime. The refugee regime was crafted in 1951. It was crafted at a time and a place where persecution was the reason for movement. Civil and political rights were privileged over economic, social, and cultural rights, the idea of somebody moving because they saw no future for themselves, they saw no future for their family, mm. was, was somehow put in a second tier. But what we are seeing now is precisely people saying that that's not the way that we can live our lives. We don't have the right to work in Turkey, in Jordan. We have no education for our children and no health care. So in a sense, this is what you're seeing. You're seeing the culmination of a governance system that is in desperate need of fixing. John, Jonathan Wittenberg, the, the, this thing of you spoke in a kind of moral language about this subject. Would Britain, say, discharge its moral responsibility to those people uh, who have made it out of Syria but are in the neighbouring states by funding them to have a more comfortable life in a refugee camp in Jordan or Lebanon? Or is the moral obligation the only moral thing to do to actually welcome them into this country, this society of ours? It seems to me there is a question about justice and about what is equitable. I can't see how a long-term solution is going to be accepted across the world when some of the poorest countries are expected to take the greatest burden. And therefore, both in terms of supporting refugees who have arrived at bordering countries and in accepting appropriate numbers. I know there's going to be a discussion as to whether one can 
define that or not, would be part of a, of a country's obligation, in my view. Could I comment on that? On that, on that exact point. Yeah. yeah, I think part of the answer to your question is um, that a country like Turkey or Jordan or Lebanon needs not to be expected to fund uh, giving a, a proper standard of living <clears throat> to the refugees in their midst. It, they, they need and deserve billions of pounds, dollars, euros from the wealthier countries so let's say that to enable them to do that. Okay, so Hungary, you, you said, Balash, that you wouldn't want them coming in there, but you thought the place they should be in is those neighbouring states. Would Hungary write the cheque to make it easier for Lebanon and those other places to receive the refugees that you wouldn't want actually in Hungary? Yeah, well, actually, we are doing that and we are supporting the hotspots outside the EU. So, so they, from outside the EU, they have the right to apply for an asylum. That's a humanitarian obligation also, but, but we are enforcing, we are encouraging them to, to march through Europe. It's, it's actually ridiculous, and we are not only talking about uh, Syrians, because that's a very different, uh, very special case because of, the politi- uh, because of the military conflict. We are talking about Africans, uh, uh, Bangladesh, people from, coming from Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Pakistan... So th- these, these countries are, are beehives of instability and poverty and economic conflict. What we should do with those people? That's millions and millions of people. Should we allow them to enter the European Union without any control? I don't think so. We have every, every developed country on earth has a humanitarian obligation to have those, uh, those people somehow. But it doesn't mean that, uh, that we, have, we need to have them like immigrants. So, Pavyash, I know you want to get in. I want to hear your response to this argument Balash made, and I think it was echoed, uh, that the welcome actually altered the problem because it, it motivated many who might not yeah, otherwise I mean, have made the journey. The... And so therefore, was that welcome, was those very moving signs in German football grounds saying refugees welcome, was that in some way a mistake? No, I don't think it was. But let me address the question head on. Malcolm and Balash, forgive me, um, make the old discreditable argument of fear that if you have to accept the media, you have to accept everybody. And then we'll be swamped. This is not the case. No one is suggesting we should accept everybody. We're talking about accepting the genuine asylum seekers, of which there are a very large number, genuinely freeing the knives of ISIL or the barrel bombs of Assad. They are not not going to flee. They're not going to stay behind and be killed, simply because there's no one to go to. They want to take them and their families out. Now, I know this argument is discreditable because it was used to stop as a policy in the Mediterranean when in the latter months of last year the government said we will not rescue people in the Mediterranean because if we do, we'll encourage others to come. We actually said that the policy was let them drown in order to put the others up. Did it put the others off? Not at all. When they followed that policy, the number of people did not diminish. It increased. And eventually we're having to reverse the policy and rescue them. Now you have the ludicrous proposition that a British warship is there rescuing them but refusing to take any of those it rescues into Britain. It's there for the television cameras, but for nothing else. This policy that says, if you take the desperate and the needy, who are fleeing for their lives and risking their lives in doing so, you will be swamped by everybody, is, I frankly say, an argument to dodge our moral responsibility and an argument built around fear which is discreditable, in my view. Very... All right. Thank you. 
you, you, you mentioned both Balash and Malcolm, so why don't they both reply? But briefly, if you could, Balash first. Sorry about. I, 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 yeah. Do you want to take a moment while you prepare what you're going to say, Malcolm? You quick reply. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. Netsuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, sure. Uh, Patty has perfectly reasonably referred to the very large number leaving North Africa. We've moved on from Syria for the moment. Leaving North Africa through Libya. It's worth bearing in mind, Paddy, that the vast majority of people who from Libya have crossed the Mediterranean have not been Libyans. They have been from sub-Saharan Africa. They are not asylum seekers. They are economic migrants. Uh, I perfectly understand why they want a better standard of living. From Mali? Yes, from Mali. From Mali, but not just you from Mali. Them, from, Ethiopia, from Ethiopia, from, uh, from uh, virtually yeah. all the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, and they're mostly aiming for France, they're not aiming for Germany, because they're mostly zones, Francophone, Francophone speakers. All of these are war zones, Malcolm. Well, I, I'm sorry, they're not all war zones. Uh, there, are in, there is instability in... Don't tell that to the people There, are, in, there in is instability in two-thirds of Africa... In large parts of Asia, you cannot simply say that regardless of how many millions of people might seek to have the benefits of living in Europe and be prepared to cross, not from Turkey, but cross the Mediterranean, as tens of thousands have already done, 
and who would be uh, added to by hundreds of thousands if it was assumed that once they'd crossed the, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, they would automatically have entitlement simple, regardless simple, of their formal simple, status. Simple question to a simple answer. You'll give a simple answer, no doubt. Was it your policy, the government policy that you supported in October and November of last year to say we will not rescue people in the Mediterranean because it would stop more coming? No, I, and I, did it? No, I, I think that yes be, or no? I, did it well, stop it? If I'm allowed to give more than one word in an answer, I'll be very happy to do so. I'll be very, very happy to do so. I don't think any civilised person uh, would refuse to pick up somebody in the sea uh, who, who needs to be rescued because they would be otherwise drown. That was never the policy of any European government, and it's pretty repugnant to imply otherwise. It was, it All right. Balash. Was... It is a matter of to save those drowning in the Mediterranean in October, and the promise was made it would put others off from coming. And they didn't. And that's why Mari Nostrum stopped. Exactly. No, I'm just, I, my, my, the immediate thing that comes to mind is a poem by a Somali poet who said, you do not put your children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And that, I really think, is, is the heart of it. There are people that are desperate enough to take these desperate, precarious means to reach safety and security. It is not, and if we, we have, stopping rescuing people means that we stop asking them why they are in the water. And that is the problem, because uh, asylum is based on individuality. It's not a nationality. But given, but given how many places are now so desperate that they're almost impossible to live in, Eritrea, Syria, etc., if the figure becomes in the millions, where do you draw that line? What limit do you put on it? International migration um, and, and seeking refugee is, its uh, status is a very resource-intensive enterprise. It is not something that the poorest of the poor can ever do. So it is not something that is, you know, you're going to kind of take lightly. Even those people that are fleeing broken governance systems in Mali, in other places in sub-Saharan Africa, are doing it for reasons to seek security and to seek dignity. And this we know um, from... Sure, but you haven't answered my question. I'm saying I'm agreeing that there may be many millions in the situation you described. Where do you, where do you yourself put the limit? Not all of them will seek, not all of them will seek asylum. Um, not all of them will need to seek asylum because they should be. I don't, think that there's, I don't think there's a number that one can put because that number hasn't appeared. If you look at the numbers of people that are coming to Europe, it is minuscule compared to the amount 80% of the world's refugees remain in their regions of origin. And there's a reason for that because, as Malcolm said, they want to go home. Okay. So we don't, we've never seen uh, no. mass movements of people to L- Europe. I know you want to get in, yes. I really want to hear people here. So there's a, somebody's got a hand up very quickly. There will be, wait till the microphone comes. I'd like to know what is the point of careful scrutinies whenever we leave the country or come in. When people are flooding in, we have no idea who they are, where they're coming from, and what their motives are. So, Malcolm Rifkin, you've mentioned briefly your own family background, and I just want to hear what you say to Paddy Ashton's point that overall it's tended to be for the benefit of a society that's taken in uh, newcomers. On that putting it very crudely, burden or blessing on the particular point of migration, what is your attitude to a new wave of immigration Uh, uh, to this country? Well, first of all, I would agree with Paddy that I think the historical experience has been on balance beneficial, but there's a crucial conditionality there. The numbers involved over the last few hundred years have been minuscule in comparison to what we're having to address at the present time and could have to address over the years to come. 
Now, the distinction, uh, there's no ethical distinction between one's attitude, or should be no ethical distinction, between one's attitude towards immigrants from, I think the gentleman said, a Slavic background as opposed to a Muslim background. But there is a practical consideration we can't avoid. We know that people from a European or Slavic background, within a generation or so, they will be entirely absorbed into the community, they will share the same values, and that will apply to pretty well 100% of them. Sadly, we have all discovered, not just in this country, but throughout the Western world, that there is a tiny proportion, but significant numbers, of people of Muslim origin who do not accept even the second and third generation have not accepted our basic values. And the greatest shock in this country at the time of the London bombings of 2005, up till then, the assumptions, even in our intelligence agencies, the assumptions was the attack we might find would be from uh, jihadi extremists from overseas. It was the realization that the the, the terrorists were not first generation, they were young people born and bred and educated in this country, never having lived in any other country, but so alienated from our values. And that is what, the final point I want to make on this is crucial. The frightening thing that worries me is that because there is a fear in this country, and it's not entirely irrational that this could grow, this in Britain, as we are seeing in France with Marie Le Pen, is going to encourage support for extremist parties if mainstream conventional parties appear to ignore the problem. All right. Okay. Thank you. I I, I want, if it's at all possible, and I don't want to signal anyone out, I I think it would be very valuable to hear a Muslim perspective on what you've just said, and I wonder if there is somebody who is a Muslim who would be ready to reply or respond to what... uh, uh, If you're in that position, that would be really good. You've got a hand up there um, to what you've just heard, so I'm going to put the microphone with you. So maybe I'm an exception to those vast numbers that you're so afraid of. I think, we, in fairness, Malcolm Rifkin did say it was a very tiny number uh, that he was concerned would not assimilate into the country's values. But keep, keep going. We have been dancing around numbers all evening. And I think it is about fear. And we should face up to that. But responsible demographers have calculated that the demographic deficit in Europe is so severe that this continent can accept up to 47 million people between now and 2050, and the population would still shrink a little bit. And this is because birth rates are falling in many of the countries. The the point that Malcolm Rifkin made and the questioner made about fear, you said we mustn't dance around it. Do you understand that fear, given the experience in London of the 7-7 bombings, British-born Muslims, etc., or, or is it a kind of racist fear? What, what do you think? Look, I think it's a difficult question, and you can find people who will give you evidence for both points of view. But I think it's fair to say that the vast majority do integrate quite well and absorb values that are identical or virtually identical. And let's be honest, between Catholics and Protestants, there are differences in values. Mm. Between Between Jews and Catholics, there are differences in values. And that's part of the strength of this country. It's part of the strength of where I grew up in the United States. And if we were to look to our political leaders and our media leaders, 
to run a discourse that ostracizes the most extreme political points of view and brings about policies that foster integration, we're much less likely to run into the kinds of problems that that he's so worried about. Thank you. Um, We, we, we have two people here, one of them a representative of a country that's absolutely been at the sharp end of this, and I want to bring him in now, uh, Konstantinos Bikos, the ambassador to this country of Greece. Um, now, I'm just wondering this, as you're listening to this, this debate, Ambassador, whether your feeling is that Greece has really been at the sharp end, and it's the, often the first place in Europe people come to, and that, well, I don't know, what you make of a debate about the British end, where many, many fewer people have been arriving. What, what, just what well, your thank you very much. What I want to say firstly is that right to see, to watch the issue from a dynamic, dynamic perspective. We have right now around 5 million people that are refugees from Syria, either in Turkey, Lebanon, or Jordan. These people are fleeing through Turkey, are leaving from where they are through Turkey. They are crossing the Aegean Sea to Greece. This is a sea border, which means practically that at sea you cannot stop someone. There are 30 kilometers of of land border between Greece and Turkey, and there is a fence so they cannot cross it. But at sea, either you push them into the water or you have to save them. We've discussed that before. We agree with that. So we have this flow of people. These people, together with others, they, they come towards Europe. Also, we don't forget that because of interventions of the West in, in many of these countries in the region. And as they flee from Syria, they create a stream to which we have other migrants from other nations, which creates mixed flows. We have flows primarily of refugees, but also for migrants who go with the stream. From the start of this year until now, we had more than 750,000 people that took this road through Turkey, over over the sea, towards Europe, Greece being the first station. And out of these people, out of this number, 600,000 came to Greece. This has, this has put a tremendous onus and tremendous uh, strain on this country that has suffered so much from the, from, from the Eurozone crisis. There are decisions on the, at the level of the European Union who talk about an allocation. We believe that this allocation should take place from where the people are. That we don't have to put these people into danger of crossing the sea. If, if, if nations of Europe, the European Union has accepted these allocations. Of course, there are uh, differentiations, the opt-out of Great Britain, all, all this well known. But we have to see that these people that are going to be resettled are resettled in, a, resettled in a safe way from where they are in the camps to the countries where they are been, uh, they're going to be accepted. Though there have been decisions, we do not see the implementation of these decisions. But mostly and very importantly, if we look at the dynamics of the situation, the solution of this issue goes through a solution of the Syrian crisis, a political solution that will make people stay at their homes or return their homes. If we don't have a political solution of the Syrian crisis, people will continue to leave and other people will go into the stream and want to come towards Europe. No one has ever stopped, and I stop with that, no one has ever stopped such huge flows of human people moving through. It's absolutely practically Uh, impossible. Thank you. And so we were saying we have to address the source of this, which is... The crisis in Syria. Could you pass the microphone to Thomas Kielinger, who is a veteran uh, journalist based in London for many years, but from the German newspaper Die Welt. Um, 
these are, in some ways, the two of you represent the two ends of this, that many people arrive in Greece, but their destination is Germany. I just wonder from you, Thomas Keeninger, whether Germans themselves are beginning to have second thoughts about that refugees' welcome <coughs> slogan, because so many came, and after the Paris attacks, perhaps some are beginning to wonder if it was a good idea. Now, forgive you for calling me veteran, Jonathan, to begin with. That's <laughs> kind of uh, to forgive me. I'm in the fortunate um, position of um, having downloaded what went on in Parliament of Berlin only today, where we had a discussion about this issue. And um, um, the, the amazing spectacle you saw was the rallying cry to unite behind Angela Merkel, quite uh, contrary to what is currently, uh, especially abroad, being perceived as her government being in crisis. One thing I can assure you is not the case that there is any instability in the government. The government is stable, period, and people don't want to add another instability momentum like an unsafe government to the instability that we already, they already uh, experience. This has happened after the Paris bombing. There was a new movement to unite behind Merkel because she's the best chancellor we could have. They may not, disagree, they may not agree with her policies, but they do agree with her as a leader. And, and as far as leaders are concerned, there was a wonderful moment when one of the politicians um, came to her and uh, congratulated her um, by reminding um, the uh, assembled members of a, um, of a quotation from the Bible, Matthew's Gospel 25. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you closed me. There is an amazing degree of solidarity still available in Germany. And this man who, who made this uh, quotation, uh, who quoted from the Bible, added to, to say in, in modern parliament, this would mean we will manage the situation. There is still an overwhelming determination inside Germany to not duck the issue, to not run away, to not capitulate, to not be defeated, but to manage the situation. It's a country of 82 million people think that they can accommodate over time. The problem is not the refugees themselves. The problem is the number that comes all, all, all of a sudden. But they have, uh, they have 180,000 only in the month of October, and they still think they can continue as long as we stagger the arrival. And number. is there a limit to that? <laughs> it has caught the attention of the world, but is there a limit even to Germany's patience, generosity, hospitality? It's 800,000. Could it go... 1.6 million? Could it be 3 million? How many Well, the jury is still out on that, Jonathan. The jury is absolutely out. Uh, the, the, the approach that the Chancellor has chosen is now she's going for the allocation idea, the quota system, but of course she will find it hard to bring through. Let me just give you one final quote. Really final. Thought, yeah, really I final. To... From her herself. And that will be seen quoted in tomorrow's papers. I bet you bottom dollar. She said, the German role is not to be the first one to say that is not possible. The German role in the middle of Europe is, um, as the greatest uh, economy, is to say we will try and try and try again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Let's hear... OK, I want to make sure we hear voices from all around the room, and there is somebody on the upper deck of the bus, as it were, over there. Go on. Yeah. So, well, I'm Syrian and uh, I'm Muslim as well, so I think I'm quite fit for purpose. Um... <laughs> Thank you. I would, have, I would definitely, I would have agreed with what um, Sir uh, Rafkid would have said, had he had he been the ex um, foreign minister of Switzerland or Holland, 
But Great Britain is quite an active power on the international scene. And I think there is a British obligation with respect to refugees, and that, is, that stems really from two faults, from two sides. The first one is the, we have to agree that there was quite a miserable foreign policies in relation especially to the Middle East and to the, least of, to, the, to the least developed countries as well. We have to agree with it. And I think what, we're, what we are seeing today is a result of this bad investment that we have already made uh, over the years in that part of the world. So this is the first side. The second side, you are, we as Britain, France, and the United States of America are the three democratic leaderships representing the world, the free world, and the Security Council. If you don't show leadership on this matter, who would? China? Thank you. Thank you. Great. Let me, let, one, one let me put the first point you've made. Let, I can't hear you now. I think they've cut the microphone. Let me put the very first... I'm so sorry. But let me put the first of your points directly to Malcolm Rifkin, because I think it's very pertinent. And I have to say the Greek ambassador made the same point. There's a special obligation on Britain because of our foreign policy. This is the argument that Britain took part in the invasion of Iraq. It's partly what led to the chaos in Syria. And because of that obligation, we have a special duty to take people in. Well, if the argument was as simple as that, the United States would have the biggest obligation of all. Uh, and maybe it does. And, 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 but I was against the Iraq war, so I, I fully share the argument that the Middle East, part of the reason why the Middle East is in a mess, part, not the whole reason, it didn't start the Syrian civil war. That wasn't the invasion of Iraq. We must be realistic about that. But in any event, let's get away from that aspect of it. The point worth making is that the United Kingdom has provided more help directly to the refugee camps for Syrians in Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq than any other country in the world, bar one. Uh, it's been vast sums of money that have gone in. Now, you may say, well, that's all very well, but you haven't taken very many refugees compared to Germany. Quite true. We have a different policy. We have a different approach because we actually believe that it is far more sensible okay. uh, to enable those who are in the refugee camps to have a decent standard of living than to encourage an unknown, in, potentially infinite number of people from all over the world to seek to come to Europe. We've got so little time, and I want to get other people back. If you're going to come back, you need to do it really briefly. Yes. Actually, really brief. I mean, I wanted to comment on the, on the, um, the terrorism-Muslim relationship. I would like to refer, Mr. Rifkid, as well, to the MI5 report that was published in 2008, and everyone actually can see the brief of it on The Guardian on the date of 20th of August 2008. And actually, the conclusion was it has nothing to do with the religious background. It's rather the economic desperate needs of those individuals. Whether in, and that was purely about the, the British jihadist. Okay? So this is to start with. Right. And actually, as, as, as a Muslim here, I can, I can tell you to rest assured that our loyalty here is not a matter of dispute. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. But Malcolm, what, um, Paddy, what I'm going to do, we've only got 11 minutes left. So what I'm going to do is try and take a very quick survey of opinion here, and then it's going to be closing remarks from all of you. Um, I don't know where the microphones are, because I've slightly lost track of that. But um, I'm keen to have a gender balance, too. So if there is a woman who has a hand up... Yes, there. Right there, just next to the... No, just there. Okay, well, several women, I know. We're going to come to you next. We're going to hear from you first. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, you, and then you. As brief as you can, so we can get them all in. Yeah. Is it on? Yeah, it is. Uh, what are your views on Australia's asylum-seeking policies? Okay. Or lack of it? Thank you. Nice and concise. And from you. Um, the, the, 
The title of this is the great European uh, debate, but should this not be opened up to the rest of the world? We talked about after World War II, where in South America, United States, Canada, I don't think this should just be about Europe. We have a moral obligation, those people in the world who are going to take a leadership on this, to do it, you know, I think uh, further um, than just the Europe. And I'm being very unclear, sorry. So you, so you were saying that the United States, Canada, other places think, should be yes, taking South people America. I, I don't think it South should America. just be um, Europe. I think the world needs to start addressing this. Well, and, you know, and, and, and Malcolm Rifkin, I think, did mention the Gulf states should be playing their part. Gentlemen, this is what about Saudi Arabia? We are in the zone now of closing remarks, I'm afraid. I'm going to give you about a minute and a half each, because then, you know, in South Kensington, people have restaurant tables booked. They're in a... <laughs> come on. It's a little joke. Um, there, so we want, to, we want to get last words in from everybody and why don't we start with you, Jonathan Wittenberg. Closing 90 seconds from you. I, I just want to say that when I, when I spoke to people at Calais, the thing they want to do is build their lives, get on with their futures and work hard and try and reconstitute themselves. That's what waves of migrants have been highly motivated to do and what drives them to seek a, to seek a new life. There is a question of numbers but, and, and the UK could play the Jewish community has been very vocal on this, a much bigger share, that it's true that the, the, the government has been very generous to monies in Turkey and elsewhere, but if it looks like a pay-to-stay policy, stay where you are, it's not good enough, and we'd want a fairer and equitable share of people because that's the way to do the best we can and show compassion. Thank you. And to, to the last person we spoke, he said, you know, that message may fly here, but it's a struggle to say that embarking in Dagenham. Your point before was that actually it's often the poorer communities who've been most welcomed. But... Yes. No, I just would just say that, that actually often the rich have been, have been wanting to protect their own and the poor have opened their arms. So one can't sort of rely on a precedent that that doesn't happen. Thank you. Um, Balash Orban, let's um, uh, hear your response to the fear that was articulated over there about some of these uh, governments, perhaps like the Hungarian government, uh, that are you know, gaining um, uh, popularity across Europe. You know, maybe that doesn't worry you on the immigration question, but is that something, for other reasons almost, people might find quite chilling, you know, the prospect of Le Pen and others in France, mm-hmm. that this issue could polarise politics in Europe? Yeah, what Malcolm was mentioned is very important, that um, because the numbers are... Uh, quite clear in that um, situation as well. Uh, the racism-oriented crimes and the number of attacks against migrants are increasing in Germany and in Austria. But uh, according to not only our survey, the proportion of uh, xenophobic people in the Hungarian population has decreased this year. Because the government declared from the very first moment that he, they want to regain control and there is no uh, place for the rightist radicalism. And that's what happened. And that's why the number of xenophobia decreased. And with the Willkommens Kultur, the number of racist-oriented attacks and, and violation against the migrants increased. That's the reality. I mean, some people might say that's because they don't need to have sort of xenophobic popular movements because the government has kind of got that covered. I think it's very logical that when the distance uh, in the opinion of the grassroots and the political elite is too big, 
then they will radicalize, their grassroots will radicalize that, their opinion. That's, I think it's very logical. Well, well, so, Malcolm Rickon, some closing thoughts from you. In particular, I thought it would be interesting to address, and it obviously got a lot of applause, a lot of <laughs> resonance in the room, the idea that the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia in particular, it's this, if anybody should step up, they've got the money to do it, they've got the room, the space, they should be doing it. Well, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the agony of the Syrian civil war, as with all civil wars, will come to an end sometime, hopefully in the next year, but if not the next year, in the next two or three years. S- several million Syrian refugees across the border, most of them will, if they're still there, will want to go home. And it must be in everyone's interest, including Syria's interest, to get some of their best people back in Syria to rebuild that country. So the, I think the prime obligation for the rest of the international community is to ensure that until that moment comes... They have housing, they have work, they have education for their children of a decent standard, and the rest of the world, including Britain, pays for that. Insofar as that is not going to be possible for everyone, then the obligation, I end as I began, is an obligation for this country and for Europe, but also for the United States, for South America, for Australia, for the Arab states. It's a universal obligation. And if there is to be a strategy, it's not a European strategy, it has to be a United Nations-sponsored global strategy to deal with that problem. That is the way forward. Thank you. Uh, Pia Orbal, would you... Um, Pia Obro, would you like to give us a closing thought and perhaps address the question there, the man who was uh, frustrated that you haven't offered a number? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think the number that I could offer is the fact that only about 10 to 15% of the migrants that are in uh, societies today, in European societies, are in an irregular situation. The majority are here working and contributing to society. The fact is that globalization means that people are moving, and it is ultimately a fantasy to believe that we can close borders and barricade ourselves in and nobody will come. The fact is that globalization and mobility is a reality, and it is up to political leadership to manage that movement, and then I agree completely that, that uh, we need more regular channels for movement, but it is also political leadership to bring about the acceptance of people into society. Econ- the economic argument and the demographic argument that's helpfully brought up is, is, is one thing, but it is up to societies to consider who they are, what they are, and what welcome means, and that is political leadership, which is crying yeah. out. Thank you. Let's... Paddy, the closing word to you. And boy, haven't we had a lesson in leadership and humanity from Angela Merkel. She's the answer to the gentleman over here, by the way. The right rises, the hard, revolting right rises. Uh, It feeds off immigration, but it rises when those decent politicians on the right give it room to rise and doesn't fight it. I watched Marine Le Pen rise, and it was when the conventional parties in France bent towards her and the advent of UKIP and its rise is because the Conservative Party did the same thing. And, Mar- and Angela Merkel is an example of what you can do to lead a nation to another destination. Churchill called us the mongrel nation, and so we are. We are the product of succeeding waves of immigration into this country, and it makes us what we are. And this is the mongrel city, and it is the most successful global city in the world because of that. Place a barrier up to it, as the gentleman over here wants, and you remove that. I disagree with the idea that it's only Muslims who are responsible for overturning our values. You've always been able to find, the gentleman over there was right, young men 
who will, seek, who will think it is part of a noble cause to kill innocent people. That was the anarchists at the turn of the 19th century. It was the Bader-Meinhof gang. It was the Rotami Faction. I don't have to go to Baghdad to hear a preacher preaching death from a pulpit. I can go to Belfast. These have always been there. And it is wrong of Malcolm Rifkin to ascribe this simply to Muslims. These are people who wish to overturn the values who happen to be Muslims, but we've had plenty of Christians seeking to do it. Look, we haven't got all the answers. This is one of the really great conundrums, challenges, moral and practical, to confront us. I know some of the things we ought to be doing and are not doing, but I haven't got a solution to all of these. We're going to have to think. But I'll tell you one thing. If you do not do this on the basis of your humanity, then you will be left with only one way to do it. Moats and walls and barbed wire. And then you'll lose your humanity and you'll create another reason for even more wars. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as Paddy Ashdown said there, it's not easy, it's complicated, we're not going to find any easy solutions. I hope we did generate some light as well as heat this evening. It only remains for me to thank all of you for your patience and participation and for you to join me in thanking our panel, Jonathan Wittenberg, Balash Orban, Malcolm Rifkin, Pierre O'Roy and Paddy Ashdown. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.